0: Hey, J-Crew. it's Josh, one of the producers of Unorthodox. When you work behind the scenes on a show like this, sometimes the hosts do everything in their power to make
1: you crazy. Sometimes they forget to do the reading for an interview. Sometimes they forget about
2: an interview altogether. Other times they come with a crazy change to a show five minutes before you're set to release it. This week, however, might take the cake. My supposed friends, Mark
0: Lee and Stephanie, decided to go watch and discuss the new Borat movie before I had a chance to watch it. I had to listen to them discuss several of the scenes before
1: I even got a chance to see what Sasha Baron Cohen was up to. If that's the sort of thing that matters to you, maybe watch the movie before you listen to this episode. Otherwise, go right ahead. And now here's the show. This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I'm your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by Tablet Deputy Editor Stephanie Butnick. Hello. And Tablet Editor-at-Large, Leah Leibovitz. Shalom lekula.
3: Is that Happy Halloween?
1: Happy Halloween. Happy All Hallows' Eve. Happy Samhain. Chag Halloween Chzamer. It's not pronounced Samhain. It's pronounced Samhain for the earth-based religionists among us.
2: (laughs) (laughs) He said Uh, without nary a contempt in his voice. Two returning
1: guests this week. Our Jew of the Week is returning Jew of the Week, Judy Gold, whose new book, Yes, I Can Say That, deals with the challenge of being funny in these times when people don't want us to be funny. And a returning Gentile of the Week, Representative Katie Porter, sat down with us in her kitchen in Southern California and, you know, caught up, schmoozed, no big whoop, just just viral sensation Katie Porter with her favorite juice. But before we get to all that, let's talk about ourselves just a little bit, our fundraiser have we crossed the 1,000-donor threshold? We
3: have. As of last week, we were at 1,010, which is so, so, so exciting. And it just proves that if you beg and bug people long enough, they will do what you ask.
1: That's exactly right.
3: Stay tuned. Later in the episode, we are going to announce who the winners are of our virtual Zooms with all three hosts. So stick around and see if you won.
1: I actually can't wait. I am so excited to find out whom I get to Zoom with, which of our donors. I miss being on the road so much. I so miss the live shows and getting to... To meet our fans, meet members of the J Crew, and I, I'm just—I'm so psyched. I think it's going to be terrific, and I'm so thrilled that so many people gave to our fun drive. It's—it's—it gives me the warm fuzzies, as my old high school friend Linda used to say.
2: And anyone who's on the Zoom with me, I—I I will make myself a drink, and I'll make you a drink, and then I'll drink both You'll drinks. You'll drink the both, and, <laughs> and it'll be great.
3: Well, it's funny because you know you—you you say we missed the road. We—we we were on a book tour. We were on our live show tour. This spring and obviously everything came to a screeching halt. But we are back on the virtual circuit, so we've been doing a lot of book events through the Jewish Book Council's network. So we've been doing like a lot of nighttime virtual events with each other, which is pretty fun. But the thing that I the the comment that I keep seeing in the chat is like, "Stephanie, who let you out of the closet?" <laughs> it's fun when like a moderator has to ask that question because I don't do these events obviously in my recording closet. I do them in my bedroom. <laughs> The one thing someone brought up, we were doing an event last night with the Rochester JCC, which was really, really fun. And I was explaining, you know, the saran wrap versus aluminum foil, the top sheets, the backing into parking spaces.
1: Jewish versus Goyish. Well,
3: yeah, And, and part of that conversation, um, someone mentioned, you know, thinking of Halloween, are scary movies Jewish or Goyish? Like, is the horror genre something that we can claim, or we can say that is not ours? And I was like, Oh, that's a good one.
1: Okay. Before, so you and Liel did last night's Rochester show. I didn't, and that's the first time hearing of it. I bet Liel, as a (laughs) as a as (laughs) a a (laughs) cineast who's into all sorts of creepy, weird movies, I bet Liel has an answer to whether scary movies are Jewish or Goyish. Do do you think? Before he gives it, I want to say that as I think in my mind about who makes. Our scary product, whether it's Stephen King or H.P. Lovecraft, or Clive Barker, or Wes Craven, or I actually think it's all Gentiles.
2: Uh, Google Jason Blum. Yeah, Blumhouse. He's the one who resuscitated this genre that otherwise lay there dying. But look, I think if you look at the classic kind of monster movies of the 30s, your Dracula, your Frankenstein, your mummy, your invisible man. Frankenstein. Yeah, it's pronounced Steen. (laughs) That was the great big insight of this kind of like first generation movie mogul Jews who understood how kind of impactful and how sort of emotional that particular form, genre of storytelling is going to be. And it hit in the Great Depression. It was the sort of perfect antidote to this national moment. And I really think only only a jew would have had that insight right only someone who came from great uncertainty from a background of a sort of epigenetic persecution etc 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 and then if you kind of look at the, at the genre and and so many of its of its greatest practitioners jason blum of blumhouse productions who really kind of made a whole host of fantastic low budget films to you know kubrick and the shining like this is the type of inherent anxiety that is that is at the core of these films the kind of great big philosophical questions uh, played out in the grandest uh, form. I think there's something deeply Jewish in it. And I could go on for another three and a half hours, but I'm going to go with Jew. Wait, can I just say, though, is there anything about which we couldn't say there's something
1: deeply Jewish in it? Like, to me, the interesting question, I'm sure you're right. Westerns. The interesting question is, what's the genre or the phenomenon of human culture where we would say eh, nothing Jewish in that hockey? Sailing. No,
3: we, <laughs> skiing. I don't know. We keep hearing from people who are like... Lacrosse. No, these, yeah. These now we're going to get the players. mail. The but, mail's you know,
1: going to come from the Jewish hockey players.
3: I haven't really thought about it, but you said Dracula, and I was sort of like, oh, God, a blood-sucking vampire who, like, wears a black suit. Oh, my God. That must have been really, like... I, I'm sure someone has written the dissertation about how, like, Dracula is based on an anti-Semitic canard or something. And and why can't we just not have everything ruined for us?
1: <laughs> well, Stephanie taylor Butnick. speaking of Jewish caricatures with, like, long grotesque fingernails and hooked noses, you know, showing up and sucking blood, uh, let's talk about the latest Borat movie, which the three of us all watched. It's Borat's subsequent movie film, right? You're
3: not going to do the subtitle? <laughs>
2: <laughs> Is there a subtitle?
1: What's the subtitle?
3: It's like make bribe Kazakhstan great again or something like that.
2: The gift of pornographic monkey for to make vice premier Michel Pence right. happy or something With, like
1: that. It's penis, I think you pronounce it. And uh the three of us all used our Amazon Prime subscriptions to watch this movie. Like all of them, it's a it's a pretty Jewy movie. The scene that's getting a lot of attention from the Jewosphere is the one in which he shows up at a temple on a Friday night, it seems, and encounters two older Jewish ladies, one of whom is Judith Dim Evans, uh, a now-deceased Holocaust survivor whose daughter is now suing the production company and, and demanding that she be taken out of the movie. Uh, does one of you want to Go a little bit deeper on this for the J Crew. So there's this scene in Borat
3: where he basically goes to a synagogue. I, I, it's so, it's like some really dark thing where he like wants to kill himself and he's like, I can't do it myself. I should go someplace where I'm in real severe danger. Since I
1: did
4: not have money to buy a gun, I went to the nearest synagogue to wait for the
1: next mass shooting. It's a little dark. I mean,
3: look, there's something really darkly brilliant about how Sasha Baron Cohen really has responded to anti-Semitism recently. Like he has become a figure more broadly talking about this stuff and really, really thinking about it. So yes. So he basically goes to a synagogue and meets with these Two women, one of whom's a Holocaust survivor, who's Judith Dim Evans, and he he dresses as like a caricature of a Jew because he wants to fit in. I mean, it's so dark and so like it's just so disturbing. So basically he has like the long fingernails, he has carrying coins, he has the nose and the pais, and he like looks revolting. Um and the
1: idea He's is basically pretending Jew to be out a Jewish. Yeah. A Belgian. I have apartment. trained you so well, Mark. He,
3: there we go. He um Meets this woman and she's amazing. Like, and it's unclear. You're watching this and you're sort of cringing because you're like, "How much do they know? how How much are they are they in on it?" And I don't think they actually were at the time. And so basically, she says, "I'm a Jew. I'm not scary." Uh, yuck, shalom,
4: I uh, Jew.
3: Yeah, I'm Jewish. Yeah.
4: Very nice weather. Uh, we have been controlling.
5: You are Jewish. Um. Y- yes. No, you are not Jewish. <laughs> Listen, don't don't be afraid of me.
4: But please don't eat me alive. Do I
5: look like I eat people? Uh I'm an old, good woman. Yes. Look at me, I'm yeah. Jewish. Do I have a long nose? Look at me. No. You can touch my nose. What? Look at me. You see, is it long?
4: No, is it's it? a small one.
5: Exactly like your nose. Mm-hmm. Look at Doris. Does she have a long nose?
4: A little bit bigger
5: than yours. So we are normal, exactly like you.
3: It's like something deeply humanizing, and it kind of reminds you that Holocaust survivors are actually like the best educators in so many ways. Um, So she basically says, I'm a Holocaust survivor, and he says something like, what do you mean, the the Holocaust, it happened? You
5: want to hear my story when I was a little child? I was in the Holocaust, you see me? I was in the Holocaust. The Holocaust? You were in the the Holocaust? The Holocaust never happened. But I saw it with my own eyes. So the Holocaust Happen. happened. Happened?
3: Yeah, yeah. And she's like, yes, it happened. And so you're watching her and you're wondering what's going on with her because you're like, okay, you are an actual Holocaust survivor and you are confronted with what you imagine is this person telling you that the Holocaust didn't exist dressed in this grotesque way with money and nose. And she's she just sort of disarms him with her own charm and, and empathy. And you're... You're watching this and you're just like, this is incredible. What she's doing is truly superhuman. Don't kill me.
5: I will not kill you. Let me give you a kiss. <laughs> you see, I give you a kiss and you are still alive.
4: For now I am, but maybe the venom take longer.
5: Oh, come on. You will be OK.
4: I'm hungry.
5: You are hungry? Yes. Good, huh? Very good. Very good, huh? Mm.
3: And then, of course, you kind of wonder what the backstory is, right? So everyone go- immediately Googles Holocaust survivor Borat. Right. And if you watch to the end of the movie, the movie is actually dedicated to her at the end of the credits. And uh, she had died between the filming and the, the time the movie came out. And so this is where it sort of gets really crazy because basically her estate, her her family, is actually suing the producers of the movie and Amazon. And they're basically saying that she thought she was being interviewed for, like, a sincere documentary. Obviously not. She thought she was going to talk about the Holocaust and they sort of played a trick on
1: her. So that answers a question I had, which is how Borat works. So she and the other woman were waiting there because the producers knew, reached yeah. out and said, we're going to show up with someone who's going to ask you some questions about the Holocaust, which is why they were seated in the pews, why they had some soup or trollant or something cooking in the back room that they end up serving him. We need to make love, not war, she says.
5: Let's make love instead of war. Hold
1: on one step at a time, Judy. So that's how it happened. I always wonder. So they, they they reach out and say, "Wait for us. We'll be there." And then it's Borat yeah. who walks in. For
3: a lot of it, for when Borat is in character, they say like, "We have a Kazakh Kazakh journalist who's coming here." Like that's how they got cameras into the quarantine house. Like it's really they. That's how they get everyone to sign forms. They don't know what they're signing, but
1: they're I love signing all these people who don't know about the Borat phenomenon, right? It tells you something about America that you can get a room full of COVID conspiracy theorists, none of whom know that the Kazakh journalist who's coming might be Borat.
3: The interesting bit is that Deadline is reporting that people close to the filmmakers, they basically say that she knew. Like, I think maybe it sounds like maybe after they told her that at some point she became aware of the gag and allegedly there's footage of her like laughing with him about it. I I imagine after the fact because but then you have to think, like, how cruel is it to play this joke on a Holocaust survivor? Like, yes, the the footage was really, really powerful, but I feel so bad for that. Like, can you imagine having to deal with this?
2: so I hated the movie and and Stephanie I think not for the first time you hated had it. Said wow. it yeah had said it way more eloquently like it really felt like much more than the first one like it was basically just playing jokes on kind of the Poorest, literally and figuratively, most vulnerable people in society. Like it's very easy to make fun of someone who lives in rural West Virginia and earns twenty-eight thousand uh, dollars. Kind of like, hey, look, you're you're this rube, and you believe all these silly things, and you you have these like. There's literally almost no attempt, except for you know Trump and Giuliani, which is the easiest target you could find. There's no attempt to actually look. And, and a lot has happened in America in the last fifteen years that Borat, as a character, could have commented, hey. look... Look at how many great American industries were destroyed by the internet. Look how much life got stupid by all these like massive corporations moving at a far faster pace than we've ever seen. To kind of keep the the emphasis on, you know, oh, look, these people are rubes kind of felt icky to me. But none of that changes the fact that this is probably the single greatest movie ever made in the Hebrew language. Because <laughs> let me tell you, that man rocks the Hebrew Time and again. And the most interesting thing, and I was listening to the whole movie, and those of you at home, if you don't know, when Borat speaks allegedly Kazakh, it's all Hebrew. And Sasha Baron Cohen's Hebrew is kind of good enough, but there's a really interesting (laughs) tweak because this is the great thing. Like, I've noticed, he starts talking, and he says the sentences exactly as they're written in the script, like as the subtitles have them, right? Like, yes, now we go to the Kazakh Ministry of Agriculture. But then he hits a point in which, like, his Hebrew school education gets to the point where he actually doesn't know the terms because that is actually requires lived in experience. And he says, now we go to the Kazakh. Office for animals who take drugs, and I'm like, wait, what? Like he says, he's like bizarre Hebrew. Like at some point, literally, he said, "Uh, "I have forgiven you, and now it is time for all of us to go and eat schnitzel and salad." I was like, (laughs) that is the first thing that came to your mind, and it's
1: so beautiful. I love that. And the woman who's playing his daughter, who is brilliant, I think, must be replying in Bulgarian. Bulgarian, right? Yeah, she's simply phenomenal. Here's my take on the movie. I've actually never been a huge Sasha Baron Cohen fan. I think there's there are definitely some scenes that are hilarious and they're strung together with far less hilarious scenes. So from a critical point of view, they're uneven. They are the definition of uneven, right? That said, I have a different reaction. I don't have the sort of flask-based, you know, he's picking on the rubes. I mean, he is. I think that's a fair point. What I always feel is that he would be able to get me also when he goes to the plastic surgeon's office and the plastic surgeon's probably pulling in like 400, 500 large a year. He's doing fine. I don't think he's like one of the rural folk who's been downsized out of a job who we have to feel sorry for. But they get him to say like, "Yeah, well, you, you know, your your nose isn't too Jewish. I mean, if it were really Jewish, it would look like this. And he mimes this huge hook nose. And but and they sort of goad him into it. Like, you know, do I have the Jewish nose? Do I not have the Jewish nose? And here's the thing. I am also someone who in any given situation says what I have to say to make the person I'm with feel comfortable. Right. I'm someone who like doesn't always stand up and correct the person who said the offensive thing because I just want to get out of the moment and I don't want there to be conflict. I'm pretty I'm actually pretty conflict averse. And I think a lot of human beings are. And this sort of insistence that when we don't stand up and smash the anti-Semitism or the racism or the sexism or the classism every time someone says it. That somehow we should be ridiculed for it. Look, when I'm a journalist, people say things to me all the time that I let them say and I just write down on my pad because my job is to listen to them and try to figure out who they are, not to correct them all the time. So there's something about this whole gotcha thing where, you know, he goes into people's spaces and gets them to go along with horrible things that he says. That it makes me feel like you know, there but for the grace of God. Like how many of us always stands up right. and corrects and smites the offensive person in our midst rather than just saying, you know, I want to go about my day. I'll get out. I'll extricate myself from the situation
2: and like go have a smoothie. I mean, most of us are just pretty human that way. It, it, Especially when the speaker is like some poor schlub in a smith. Also, apparently he never washes the Borat suit, right? So imagine like that guy in that suit not washed since 2003 right. or whatever, walks into your office and says, nah, it's the Jew. You're like, I'm not going to like lord it over this guy. I think this is a touchy subject. I think th- I can already see the people say, well, no, I mean, if you're not
1: an upstander, if you're not, if you don't lean in and say and correct people and insist on the dignity of all humans at all times, you're, you're complicit. But here's the thing, all of us choose our times and places, right? I mean, I think that when you're in a kind of public sphere where some people might be looking up to you, right? Let's say you're on a team and you're the captain of the team or you're the senior and somebody says something offensive and there's even just three or four people looking at you, it's so meaningful if you're the one who says, hey, we don't talk about other people that way, right? But here they are in an office where literally the plastic surgeon, I mean, yes, he's trying to get the business, but at the same time, like he has these two crazy people sitting across from him wanting to talk about the Jewish nose the demand that he throw them out or something or or stand up for the jews is a lot Yes, that was a creepy thing. He also said that he would like sleep with the daughter. Like he he was creepy on another
3: count that you're like, that's okay, true. this guy's a creep. And I I see that. You know Lil, I actually don't think about this as like class based meanness. I mean, he it's it's a lot about the pandemic, right? It's about a lot about like anti-mask culture. And I don't think that's necessarily that he's making fun of people who are whatever. He's he went to an anti-mask rally. Like I think he's basically trying to show some of the hypocrisies in American life. And you know, I was watching the first Borat after the after the second one because I was sort of like, oh, let me actually remind myself like what it what it was about. Um and that's really intense. I mean, the fact that his satire takes on anti-Semitism so strongly, but it, it does it by embodying the character of the anti-Semite. Like, remember when he was at the, the bed and breakfast um, that was run by two Jewish people who are like mm-hmm. so nice and sweet and he's just like so horrified by them and they put like cockroaches on the floor and they say that they've come in as cockroaches and like then they flee in the middle of the night. And those people were actually like deeply upset and hurt and I think have sued him or something. And so I guess the thing that's hard to watch about it now is like we watch that scene with the Holocaust survivor. In our minds, we're untangling it. Like, how much did she know what the beginning. Like, I think we're in this moment where we're so so used to knowing how everything comes together that we're like, wait, was she in on it at this point? Was she in on it at this point? Like, we need to sort of know behind the scenes of what was going on. Mm-hmm. We don't just like mm-hmm. sit back and watch it the way I think we a lot of us watch Borat, the first one, right. But wait, let's go back to the social media stuff, Leo. I'm gonna push back on you. He like has a bunch of jabs about Facebook and Sasha Baron Cohen gave an ADL speech all about how terrible Facebook is. I don't think that he's giving a pass. I
2: totally disagree. He has two or three jokes at a very specific facet of a very specific company. But he was interviewed, I think last week, and asked to say, what has changed in America in the 15 years since the first Borat came? He said, oh, huge change. America is a vastly more racist place now and this is what what Borat 2 is about. If you look at that changes in American life at the last 15 years, there are so many great, big, prevalent seismic shifts that a Borat would have been incredibly useful in unpacking. Notice that none of the interviews took place in New York or in Silicon Valley or anywhere else. It was just like, oh, here are a bunch of people down south. Even like the abortion clinic scene, right? It was some kind of Christian abortion clinic. It wasn't you know, like anything. It just felt so it like a shitty Silicon and Valley abortion to clinic? <laughs> No, to me. Like, w- again, why not look at, at all the hypocrisies that come to us courtesy but, of Leo, our social media overlords?
1: I agree with you that those are all important, but those are also your issues of the moment. Like there's other issues, right? You and I are together and sort of lamenting the way that the internet has been really corrosive, but he's
2: allowed to have other things in his gun sites, right? That's exactly my point. My point is that the comedian should have no issues. He should just go after power the way Lenny Bruce did. I mean, imagine so, Lenny Bruce wait, making wait, wait, wait. the Borat.
1: Wait, so here's where I, th- I want to push back on you also, right? And I think it goes to my public-private distinction. Like the plastic surgeon in his office goading him into saying anti-Semitic things... Is, and by the way, he probably has had conversations with Jewish girls who have come in and talked about their Jewish noses, right? Like plastic surgery 100%. offices, I imagine, are places where these things get very real very fast. And I, We should have an episode about that. I'm completely on the record as loathing plastic surgery in pretty much all of its – or cosmetic surgery, I should say, in pretty much all of its form. But – the public-private distinction, I think, is really important. What Stephanie brings up about those the COVID mask people, these are people at rallies, right? If I see an anti-vaxxer rally, I think I want to wade in and I want to humiliate and demean those people for their stupidity because I think their rallies kill children by discouraging vaccination. Okay, it doesn't mean I'm going to wade in and do it. It just means that's where my my emotions are. But going into someone's office and trying to get them to say things that will offend. It just feels different. It's,
2: it's one I thing agree with change. that distinction.
3: I also think that, like, yes, it would be great if Borat was a completely different film, but I like the one that he he gave. I mean, I just thought it was, I thought, thought it, by the, you know, the twist at the end was very clever. I don't know. I think it was sort of, it was a nice thing to have right now. I mean, I almost can't believe that he filmed so much of it during COVID. Like, it's actually crazy. And if you look at it, Quarantine House Medic is something that's credited.
2: You really, like, dug down on the credits, well, didn't because you? I you really watched the credits. De- I,
3: when I Googled Holocaust Survivor Borat, like, I knew that they were going to dedicate the film to this. <laughs> Woman, so I wanted. I waited till the end of the credits to see it. So, so yeah. I mean, look, I, I don't think it needs to be everything to everyone. I think it was surprisingly good, and I also think it reminded me of the other Sacha Baron Cohen movie that I saw recently, which was Aaron Sorkin's The Trial of the Chicago Seven. And Sacha Baron Cohen is an amazing dramatic actor. He plays Abby Hoffman in there, and then he was he was Ellie Cohen on the the spy that show about the Israeli spy Ellie Cohen, and he's so good in dramatic roles that it's actually weird to see him as Borat because I'm like, what? So this is the movie about the 1969 prosecution of all these guys who protested at the DNC that summer, and it's it's coming to us at a really Correct. interesting time politically, right? Like this is a, a movie about like very left wing protesters who disrupted the DNC and caused all sorts of chaos there, and this goes into the the trial, and it's Aaron Sorkin movie, so obviously you get like a lot of walk and talk, a lot of courtroom scenes. But something people have been talking about since this movie came out last weekend is that Aaron Sorkin really dejuified the story, which totally. features so many Jews and Jewish plot lines. The judge in the trial was Julius Hoffman. And there was a lot in real life about Abby Hoffman calling him a Shonda, like speaking Yiddish. It definitely comes out a little bit, but you're right. Like there was definitely a lot oh, of not
2: like, c- Compared to what the real trial was, not at all. So much of that real trial, they wore yellow stars at some point. Lots of Yiddish uh, back and forth, lots of Holocaust kind of analogies, like you're only following orders. What does that make you? Aaron Sorkin really deracinated the whole movie, which I think, again, makes for a lesser movie. It makes for some like kind of glib metaphor in, Instead of a movie that actually really deals with really real emotions, which we need right now. Here's what we need right now we don't need another stupid, shitty political parable. We need people who could deal with real freaking human emotions with other people that they don't agree with. Can we please have that from anyone? Speaking of what we
1: need right now, I think that our listeners need from us before (laughs) we go to our interview with Judy Gold. Since this is the last episode of Unorthodox, they will hear. Before going to the polls. Before
3: Halloween. For
1: All Hallows' Eve and Samhain, and before going to the polls to choose the next president of the United States. Something Stephanie and I will do, but Leo will not, as he is an immigrant who has right. never attained citizenship. I would like each of us to give a take on Jews and politics. I was inspired uh, by <laughs> to ask for this by the rage I felt at reading about all these Jews for Trump rallies. Rage I did not feel because they were for Trump, but because I felt they were that Jews. they're- pro-Trump rally was very un-Jewish, about which I'll say more in a moment. But first, Stephanie, Leave our listeners with a thought on Jews and politics.
3: Jews and politics. I will say that I'm wearing the greatest hat that I've ever purchased. Um, I usually don't make political endorsements, but I do make artistic endorsements, and this is a hat that says basically looks like it has a B and then a quote mark quotation mark and then an H, so it looks like Baruch Hashem, but it actually stands for Biden Harris 2020. Um, And it's by Oh, I just got
1: that. Yeah, do you see it? (laughs) I'm so no, I saw the hat. I was like Baruch Hashem, it's in the Biden colors. He's he's rocking the blue. And then I, I didn't get that. I'm so slow.
3: It's by this <laughs> artist Jeanette Coven Orin, and she, she's sort of like I think when my neighbor he, in New Haven. Yeah, yeah. Amalia's mom. Uh, F and A. All right. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. so basically, um, I'm friends with Amalia, and she was, you know, she was like right after Biden um, picked Kamala Boarding Harris, right she. She sort of was like B H Baruch Hashem and so she makes all these hats and I'm like, I'm wearing it like less as a Biden endorsement and more of an endorsement of like the cleverest thing I've ever I've ever seen. Wait, let me show it to you again.
2: And and more as a Hashem endorsement.
3: Uh, yeah. Um, Buy yes. one
2: right How now. funny
3: is it? And so she makes them in Hebrew too, but it was too. It was too. That was too Jewish for it's me. Too Jewish actually. for me. Yeah. First of all, I think this hat is the perfect example of like we cannot not make things Jewish. Um, like you see a B and an H, and you're like Baruch Hashem, of course. And I'll let you talk more about the the Trump rally. I think there's something really interesting happening with the Jewish community right now, which is a lot of people base their support for or dislike of Trump in in Jewish terms and so there are a lot of people who say like how can you be a Jew who votes for Trump and then there are a lot of Jews who say but it but Israel he's so good for Israel and so there's a lot of people using their Jewish identity to like either reconcile their support or hatred of this of this politician and I don't think that's happened and in recent memory in terms of politics and religion.
2: I'm into that. Not only has it not happened in, in recent uh, years, and recent memory, it should never happen. It should be completely separate and, and divorced. I, I fully endorse the teachings of the great Rabbi Sachs, uh, who taught us on this year' podcast just a few weeks ago about the uh, need, uh, in fact, the urgent need for separating our Jewishness from whatever partisan affiliations we have. And I'd like to uh, announce on this occasion that I fully endorse Hashem, 2020, <laughs> and 2024. God, 2020. <laughs> And
1: 28. God, 24. I was reminded that the Rebbe, Menachem Schneerson would never attack people. He would attack policies, uh, that he would have opinions about issues, Russian Jewry, immigration, et cetera. I don't, you know, that occasionally he would let, let it slip or let be known how he felt about a political issue, but that he never made it about the people. And it occurred to me, you know, what's so problematic about these Jews for Trump rallies. And I haven't seen Jews for Biden being as sort of sycophantic and worshipful of Biden, though certainly when Obama was running, there was there was some of that. But this time I would say it's much more on the conservative and right leaning world, especially in the Orthodox world, um, is the the idol worship, right, is the person. um, It's 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 horrid when we attack people. It's also horrid when we worship people. And um, you see some of the posters. I mean, one of them that you can see in the Jewish Telegraphic Agency article shows shows, uh, you know, Trump with a like a ripped, you know, muscular chest and a machine gun. And it's clearly Rambo. I mean, the idea that a human being is to be idealized or idolized is, you know, it's Dazara, it's, it's idol worship. It's profoundly un-Jewish. But if people want to say. I'm extraordinarily pleased by this policy, or I loathe an unwillingness to stand up to white supremacy, or I loathe uh, putting children in cages, or however you want to fashion the issue, that if you keep it to the issues rather than the person, I think you are ultimately also much more effective. And I, I think that it's really not for us here on earth to be sort of convicting or exonerating other human beings. That's kind of the, vi- the virtue or the discipline that I want to keep in mind over the next couple of weeks. Amen to that. I would also like to put in a plea, and this is just in general, that we, again, like being vituperative toward other human beings, be they Trump voters or Biden voters or third party voters, it's never our best selves. And I also just like- Also, definitely
2: add, against our religion. Like, like <laughs> if you're looking for one thing that's against our religion, let me help you out there. This is against our religion. Stop yeah. it. Don't do it.
1: Friends, you may remember that we were the first and only Jewish podcast to host Representative Katie Porter. She was at our Washington, D.C. live show uh, a couple years ago. Since then, she's become even more of a Twitter sensation. Her whiteboard of truth has gone multiviral, and she has also been named the official non-Jewish congressperson of the podcast Unorthodox. It was our great pleasure to chat with Representative Katie Porter.
3: Returning Gentile of the week is Congresswoman Katie Porter. She represents California's 45th congressional district, and I would say she's our favorite politician in the universe. Welcome back, Katie. Representative. Thank
1: you for having me. Yeah, Stephanie, watch <laughs> it. She could send you the arm You just oppenheimer her.
2: You call I'm her so Katie? I'm so sorry.
3: I'm so sorry. <laughs> you can all call me Katie. I'm so sorry.
5: It's a warm crowd here. I'm Representative
2: Porter, uh, I want to speak about, uh, about uh, the, the term that you had made famous The whiteboard of truth, in which you use to great effect in congressional hearings to rightfully shame a host of people who really ought to have been shamed a long time ago by the people we elect to represent us. But kind of watching you do these incredible, sort of like half professor, half congresswoman kind of performance, really sort of brought a curious idea to my mind. It's almost like people want facts and substance in politics. Is that true?
5: I hope so. I I, I fervently, fervently hope so. Um, But I think one of the things that the whiteboard or any other kind of prop that I might be using is it really recognizes that I have a responsibility to help draw the American public into these policy issues. People are busy. They're trying to fold laundry. They're trying to get to the grocery store. They're late to work. um, They're trying to take care of their sick grandma, whatever it is. And I think that there's something that happens when a lot of people get elected, which is that they come to believe that they are fundamentally more interesting than they are. Um, And it's not true. What's interesting are the policy issues that I'm working on. And so the whiteboard is a way of trying to get everyone on the same page and focus on the substance and away from from me um, or away from the witness even, but on what exactly the witness is saying.
2: Top that, Mark.
5: What a concise and coherent explanation. You know, I was talking to a
1: journalist the other day who was intrigued to know that I knew you a long time ago. And she said to me, did she always want to be a politician? And I said, I don't think so. I mean, I knew her when for a time she thought maybe she'd be a junior high school teacher, something Mm -hmm. she was excellent at in the summer program we both worked in. And then, of course, she went to law school and that was her career. And it occurred to me, I never asked you, when did you decide you wanted to? Because we knew people in college who wanted to be politicians, most of them we didn't like. We tried not to hang out with them, and now here and all the people who thought they were going to be Congress people. Our management consultants, and here you are, a Congress person. When did when did that happen?
5: Well, I mean, in college, one of the things was that I was never, and I think you were, weren't you, Mark? Part of the debating union, like debating <laughs> well, society.
1: I may have had tendencies in that direction.
5: Yes. So Mark was one of these people who was, people would constantly say to Mark, like, you're going to become a politician. I maybe was one of the people who liked to <laughs> accuse him of that. And I've often thought, Mark, that like I've seen your bylines over the years, that you really were true to that. You said you wanted to to write. You said you wanted to, to think about some of the important questions of our time, and you really have done that. But I think I always felt like those organizations were for people who were... Um, I don't know. I just didn't feel like I belonged. I didn't have a navy blue blazer. Um, I, I didn't grow up as a debater. I, I just didn't see myself as a politician. And actually, about six months into office, somebody said, asked me a question. They said, well, something blah, 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 as a politician. <laughs> and I was like, where? Where's a politician? I just didn't have that. I, mean, I thought of myself as a candidate, I thought of myself as a congressperson, but I hadn't really taken on this label of politician. Um, so I think it, you know, really for me, I always thought I would make a difference on policy. I was I testified before Congress three or four or five times as an academic, I wanted to shape the law. That part was was there, but I didn't see myself doing it as a lawmaker
1: until after Trump won. So that was it, I mean, when that, that was, when, when did you first think maybe I should run for
5: Congress? like the night Trump won. And I mean, really, it came about through a conversation that I had with someone. I mean, I went to my community center on the night of the election of 2016. And earlier in the day, I had taken my daughter with me to go vote, explaining to her that we were going to vote for what I thought would be the first female president. um, And I wanted my daughter to come. And then I went to my local grocery store and I ordered a full size sheet cake. I mean, like, A full-size sheet cake is the size of like a dining room table. The size of Um, a sheet. Yeah, I mean it's huge, and so it said, you know, you know, Hillary Clinton, president, something like that. I took it to the community center. I don't have cable, so I wanted to watch TV. So I went to the community center, and there were all kinds of other people there. And as the night wore on, it was very interesting. The men just went home to sleep it off. The women drank so much wine, so much crying. And those kids ate the entire sheet cake unsupervised. I mean, they were just allowed to run wild out of school night eating sheet cake. But later that you know, as I as that night and the next day happened, I, I said to people, Well, you know, I'm disappointed because I thought that this might be a chance for me to work on housing policy, to go to Washington. I turned down lots of offers to go in the past. And I said, Well, I'll just have to wait. I'll have to wait. Maybe Elizabeth Warren will run for president. Maybe Kamala Harris will run for president. Maybe in four years, my my chance to make a difference will come. And um, my boyfriend said to me, "I don't get it." And I said, "Well, I started explaining to him this concept of you know like Elizabeth Warren or Kamala Harris might run for president." He's like, "No, no, no, I get that. You don't wait for anything. Like you are the kind of person who obsesses over the like the what grocery line to be in. Um, you obsessively check bus schedules, like." My biggest frustration in Congress is that it's so painfully slow to assemble to vote. He's like, you have zero patience. I've never had any patience, Mark can attest. And so he's like, why don't you wait for someone else to make it possible for you to make a difference? You could just run for Congress. Um, and at that time that I started thinking about it, I didn't understand quite what I was getting into, which maybe is partly why I was willing to get into it.
2: And so uh, having described so heartbreakingly the mood last time this country went and voted. Uh, Here we are again at the cusp of another election. What's your mood like right now? What's your read of the national...
5: Yeah, I think you have to be an optimist to do this job. I think if you do not believe in the people of this country, then you are in the wrong profession. And I think one of the hardest things about democracy is accepting the results that sometimes we end up with leaders who let us down. Um, but and, but that is part and parcel of democracy. I always say to my staff, one of my favorite comments when they say something to me, you know, you're, you're really hard to work for. I've rewritten this six times already. I always say to them, buy the ticket, take the ride. And I think that's true about democracy too. Um, we have this system of government, but it, it comes with elections that turn out to not work out elections that give us leaders who fail, Um, but I think, you know, the, the beauty of democracy is that you get this consistent opportunity to redo it, to make different choices, and I'm really encouraged by the level of voting that we're seeing, by the diversity of people who are voting, and I think out of all the horror of the pandemic, but one of the things that might come out of it that's really good is a lot more willingness to expand the different ways that people can vote. We've had voting by mail here in California. Many years ago, I lived in Oregon like 20 years ago and they were all voting by mail then. Um, And so I hope that we, we use this moment to kind of feel optimistic about the level of civic engagement that we're seeing from people. So we're talking to you. It's
3: October. We are about seven months into this pandemic. And, you know, you are in Congress. You also have small children. And something that you've said is that childcare is really, really key to this economic recovery that we are we are facing. Um, Could you tell us a little bit both about some of your thoughts and plans and also how your personal experience has inspired you?
5: Yeah, I've been a working mom um, for many years. I think Congress may actually have been the first job that I turned up to that I wasn't pregnant when I got there. Um, So, I definitely juggled my whole career. I have three kids. I now have a high schooler, a middle schooler, and an elementary schooler. And they are in part-time in-person school with all of their, I I got their schedules. I put them all into a color-coded spreadsheet, Mondays and Tuesdays and this time and that time. And guess how many minutes they were all in school together at the same time so I could actually work. (laughs) <laughs> zero. None. Zero minutes that they were all in school together. So I think one of the things that you know we're seeing is that women are bearing the brunt of the pandemic. Um, and we're seeing that in direct labor force results. In September, 80 percent of the workers who exited the workforce were women. That is going to have a long-term consequence on the fight for equal pay, on the fight for women um, having positions of leadership and power. Um, and so when we talk about, you know, the recovering from this pandemic, one of the things that we need to change the conversation about is child care isn't something we do for people who have children. Child care and support for elder care as well is something we do for all of us. Because when we have those kinds of supports, we end up with a stronger, more talented, more consistent workforce. So whether you have children or not, you should be fighting for a stronger caregiving workforce, for more investment in child and elder care. And that's one aspect of Joe Biden's Build Back Better plan that I really like. When I first heard Build Back Better, I was like, oh no, bridges. Again, with the bridges, because everybody went to Congress, my classmates, from these moderate districts, and they were all like, bridge? I mean, they were so, that was sort of how they were going to get reelected, right? The highway to, to here or there. The fact that he is conceiving, that Vice President Biden is conceiving of an investment in the caregiving workforce of, as part of infrastructure and economic recovery is really, really groundbreaking. We've never seen that from a presidential candidate before, and I think it's really exciting.
1: So. You live in California. You represent uh, California District. To be clear, they do have early voting now in California. What's the situation with how you can the different ways you can vote in California?
5: Yep. Um, California has really terrific um, system of voting. We have a wonderful secretary of state and Orange County. And this may surprise some people. Orange County, California has the very best registrar of voting in the entire country. He is amazing. Um, And what he really wants to do is allow every eligible person to vote in a safe and convenient way. Um, And he's amazing at his job. So we have, Uh, Everyone got a mail ballot. Um, You don't need postage. You just drop it in the mail. There are ballot box, um, drop boxes everywhere. I mean, there are more ballot drop boxes than there are Starbucks. You can stand in one place and see more than one of them. Um, There are drive-through opportunities. There's early vote centers. And then, of course, there's day of voting, which he's worked very hard to make sure is consistent. So we're obviously seeing... A wide variety of voting experiences around the country, some of which are very, very troubling. I feel very, very fortunate to know that every one of my constituents, regardless of who they're going to vote for, is going to have the opportunity to vote.
1: So, have you voted already?
5: I have not voted. I'm voting on Friday. I have my ballot. Okay. Who are you voting for? I'm going to vote for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris.
1: Okay. How many times?
5: <laughs> Once.
1: Okay. Just wanted. I just wanted to get. I wanted to ask the tough questions.
5: Nice, nice try. Mark.
1: Now, you are from Iowa. The question that tripped up Senator Joni Ernst about the price of soybeans, can you did you know the answer?
5: I did not know the answer today, but if I lived in Iowa still, I think I might because they usually give the price of corn and beans right before or right after they give the weather. So if you listen to local radio, you would have known that.
1: So the point is Joni Ernst doesn't even listen to Iowa radio.
5: Apparently not.
1: All right. As someone who grew up in Iowa, what's it like looking at the state now? Do you feel like this extra stake in what happens there? Do you pay extra close attention?
5: Well, sure. I mean, I'm a, I'm a fifth-generation Iowan. Um, I grew up there. I still have family there. Um, my grandmother's in a long-term care facility there, and the COVID rate, um, there's been an outbreak at her at her nursing home. It's scary. Um, so, of course, I care about Iowa, but I think one of the wonderful things about being in Congress is, yes, you're of a special obligation to listen to people of your district and to connect with them, but very rarely does Congress make a law that affects only one district. We make laws that affect the entire country. And so they should take advantage of opportunities to learn about and think about what are people's needs in other places, to talk to colleagues, to understand what are the challenges people are facing in Florida or Puerto Rico or Montana. Um, And I think that's one of the really interesting and rewarding parts of the job.
2: If you could have any plum position in the Biden administration, what would it be?
5: Um, I would say IRS commissioner. And um, the other day I did an interview and I was like, we were talking about. Um, 501C3s and 501c4s and 527s and Commissioner Ellen Weintraub of the FEC said like we're really getting down in the tax weeds now. And I was like take me there. Like I love the tax weeds. Um, but you know our tax system there's so much opportunity to make it work better. Um, everything from closing loopholes for big corporations to making it easier for everyday people to file their taxes fully funding the audit division of the IRS and making sure that that people aren't cheating would alone generate enough revenue to fund some of the priorities that I care a lot about, like expanded access to mental health treatment. So it's one of these sleeper jobs, like maybe there's a whole host of people who wake up every day and are like, ooh, IRS, like fascinating. Um, But I really think it's one of these jobs that could be a transformative position. Um, But truthfully, like I haven't really given a lot of that thought. I have my own election in six days. So my last obsession for all week long has been trying to get these really cool car decals that say, I love voting, um, to give out to people. We're going to have a a vote. Everyone's going to line up in the parking lot. We're going to drive to the polls and drop our ballots in. And I got these great I love voting stickers for everybody. So I've been spending my time Googling car decals, ASAP, car decals, when you've procrastinated, things like that.
2: <laughs> Our producer, Josh, though, asked that if you could hold up the uh, whiteboard uh, as he would like to take a photo of you and it because he feels very emotional about it. I
5: do. So this is my Gentile question of the week. Oh,
1: well, you came okay with another one? Hold, hold up the whiteboard.
5: Oh, no, this is my favorite oh my- whiteboard. <laughs> Um, And this one is my very, very favorite because it fits in my purse. It's exactly the same size as my iPad. So it just slides right in my purse. It's really light. It's just cardboard on back. um, And it has its own marker that goes on it. So I'm never without it. And so when I do interviews now or people will ask me about the whiteboard, and I can just whip it out. And it's really, really handy. And one of my male colleagues said, like, I cannot think what I would do with that. And I literally had just been making a grocery <laughs> list for what I needed at the grocery store. I mean, it's it's like an environmentally friendly version of notepad. So I see on
3: your amazing whiteboard, you have written the question, why do Jews give $18? And my question to you is, are you getting a lot of $18 donations? Have you noticed that? Um, I, I have,
5: especially you know, I think now I don't look at each individual contribution, but in the early days of my campaign where $18 was really, really a big deal, um, I did and I would get 18, I would get 36. I know it I know there's something. I mean, I I'm really the Gentile of the week. Here, really but I know amazing. there's something relating to multiples of 18. So it's not just 18, because sometimes I'll get $36 or I'll even get $360 or I think it's 54, a multiple of 18. Anyway, I don't understand why. So I get $540 (laughs) or $54. So I know it's okay to give, like it's a thing to give, not just 18, but multiples of 18. But I I don't know where this number comes from. So I'll let Mark explain that. But I will have to say, it's a great way for your campaign to know like
3: how how strong your Jewish support is. Yeah. How many $18 contributions (laughs) are coming in?
1: Well, obviously, Representative Porter, you know that Jews are exquisitely good with money, right? (laughs) (laughs) If you, say, if you say so, Mark. <laughs> I'm going to actually defer to Leah Leibowitz, who's actually deep in the Talmud right now, because the simple answer that I know Stephanie and I could both give is that it has special numerological value. It's the It represents the the letters that make up the word chai, which is life. So the, every Jewish Hebrew word has a numerological value as well. But I bet that Reb Leibowitz, who is currently reading a page of Talmud every day, is deep in the scriptural weeds, might be able to go even deeper.
2: I, I could go deeper and deeper yet, uh, but but the, the short and sweet answer answer is precisely this. Uh, since we believe that the letters that make up the Torah are holy, uh, each one of them has its own kind of substance uh, and, and value, uh, the letters that represent life are, are important, not just in a symbolic manner, but actually in their ability to bring about uh, positive light and change to the world. So every $18 that you get is from someone who really believes, truly, uh, literally, uh, as well as metaphorically, that they're changing the world without money.
5: That's amazing. I'm really glad to know this because I I basically just knew like 18 is the cool number for Jews. But I didn't feel like that was, I mean, obviously I was missing a little bit of detail. But here's the thing. You now know more
1: than most Jews. Like a lot of Jews know that it's our cool number, but don't know why. You have just leapfrogged over about 85% of American Jewry in your understanding of it.
5: Excellent. I also have an unorthodox magnet on my refrigerator, which I think is pretty good for a Gentile.
1: <laughs> We're going to send you a tote bag if you want.
5: Ooh, I love tote bags.
1: Parents can always use more tote bags.
5: (laughs) This fits exactly in a tote bag, (laughs) so it's perfect. I never have, I have to say, like people have sent me a lot of whiteboards at this point. So I think I have something like seven or eight, but I've always had a really big one um, screwed into my wall where I keep things, like I'll write my schedule for my kids, like mom in Congress, you know, nanny coming at this time. Don't forget you have swimming practice. So it's always been a handy tool.
1: Representative Katie Porter, thank you so much for being a returning Gentile of the week. Wait until you see the prize you get if you come back a third time. We're not going to tell oh you now, God. but yeah. <laughs> and when
3: you make it to 18, like you won't even believe it, <laughs>
1: You won't even believe it, but good luck in your. Oh, I know you have an election. You don't seem to be sweating it too hard. You I hear the polls are good for you, though apolitical. We wish all of our guests the best things for them. So whatever that means for your election on Tuesday. And uh, we'll hope to have you back in the future. Thanks so much.
5: Thank you, guys.
4: tell me tell me in the day or the night would
1: it kill you to call or write? to the mailbox we were talking about how to pronounce Mazeltov and we got this call from a proper brit who had his own thoughts
0: hi this is richard i'm a j crewer from london england and wanted to weigh in on the controversy or question of how you pronounce muzzeltov muzzeltov long o is very much an American thing. Having lived in Israel and the U.S. and, of course, coming from England, we moved from Israel to the U.S. a number of years ago with my children who'd grown up in Israeli preschool and couldn't get over the fact that American Jews said shalom as opposed to shalom. Eventually, they end up saying shalom. And then we moved back to London, and they have now... Sean it to the British Jewish Shalom or Mazel Tov. American ovals are longer than English ovals, so maybe this is more about the way that we are two peoples separated by a common language, both in Hebrew and in English. Ah, uh, Richard,
1: 250 years after we got our independence, you're still trying to school us on the important things.
3: It's like in Hamilton. Mazel tov. Now you'll see (laughs) something, something, something.
1: (laughs) The mail keeps coming on the autocorrect. This time it wasn't just iPhone autocorrects; It was also Google Transcription autocorrects.
5: I live in Israel and manufacture tofu as my profession. I was traveling to the States and wasn't going to be delivering tofu to the co-op while I was gone. The notice that went out by email was that... Simcha, my name, would not be delivering tofu, and it was signed orange, his name. I Google translated to English, and it said, There is no tofu because there is no joy in the land. Signed, pine cones.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Here's a fun one. Recently, a cousin sent me a message during the holidays that said, Go
4: bar hopping Matilda. And Shabbat Shalom. And then a few
5: seconds later, below it, she wrote, I was dictating Gmar
2: Hatima Tova, but Siri doesn't like. Go <laughs> bar hopping, Matilda. And one of our favorite. Belatedly responding to a request from the October 7th show for Jewish autocorrection examples, it must be something about my pronunciation, but I learned when my son was preparing for his bar mitzvah that when I dictate the words Ahava rabba" abundant love, into any Apple device, it returns, I have a rubber. Hope all is well, Joe. Joe, all all,
1: all is well now. (laughs) It's like Borat for I have a rubber. (laughs) And Stephanie, one came in over social media.
3: So one of our great tablet fellows, Isaac DeCastro, sent us this amazing tweet from Dr. Anna Scanlon. And she said, I'm sorry that you're all massively offended by me saying Israel as a nation has PTSD due to the Holocaust and subsequent pigeons. This is not an indictment on Israel, blah, blah, blah. That was the tweet. But she basically had to reply and say pogroms, not subsequent pigeons. So pogroms <laughs> translated to pigeons. So, yeah, I have no idea the politics behind that tweet, but I just know that pogroms are not pigeons.
2: As Ukrainian Jews learned the hard way, pogroms are not indeed pigeons.
3: That's like when you're sitting in Central Park and you like pull out a bagel and then they all come for you.
1: Where's our Meowschwitz level pun on pigeons?
3: The pigeon pogrom. That's what I'm going as for Halloween. <laughs> you're doing
1: Halloween this year. That That is News of the Jews'
2: in and of itself. I read the funniest joke on Twitter and I'm, I'm so mad that I didn't see who said it. She's like, for Halloween this year, I'm going as a former child prodigy. And then someone will ask me, what are you supposed to be? And I will say, I was supposed to be so many things.
1: <laughs> and a final letter, unsurprisingly the best letter of the week. It's happened before coming from a Gentile listener. What would we do without them? Dear Stephanie Liel and Mark, a couple follow-ups from this week's show from me, a longtime Catholic, short-time Episcopalian, and somebody who looks longingly at Judaism. We know where it's going to end for you, Jim. We, we know where this is going. Episcopalian is a gateway drug, <laughs> really. Jim writes, first, while it's of no particular significance, Mark was talking about the term ordinary time. And in the Catholic liturgical year, it's not signifying a plain time or a boring time, but rather because the Sundays in that time just come in order. It's from the Latin for numbered or ordered. <sighs> Man, I liked it. I liked my version better, Jim, but thanks for clearing this up. That's like a very Talmudic dispute. (laughs) Uh
3: uh So, Jim, you're on your way.
1: Jim writes, second, this is where Jim is like on his way to being a moil. The discussion of what to do with circumcised foreskins calls to mind a book I read a few years ago. It was called An Irreverent Curiosity in Search of the Church's Strangest Relic in Italy's Oddest Town by David Farley. The Gospels say Jesus bodily ascended into heaven. But the fact that he was a practicing Jew means that one part of him, what the saintly tradition would have called a primary relic, was left behind his foreskin. (laughs) The The small town of Calcutta in Italy claimed to have this unusual relic, which the town would celebrate in public every year until the foreskin, quote, disappeared a few years ago. Or perhaps was disappeared by clerics who were ready to sweep that tradition under the rug. The mind boggles. As always, the podcast is great, and I wish you all the best. Jim Pfau, St. Paul, Minnesota.
3: Okay, I cannot wait for the Dan Brown sequel that's, like, about the search for <laughs> Jesus's foreskin. <laughs> this is the kind of thing that, like, rationally does make sense, right? That Jesus oh, would have probably been circumcised, but then you're like, holy God.
1: Oh, my. The
3: Holy Trinity is actually includes the foreskin. <laughs> the father, the son, and the foreskin.
1: Uh, Jim Pfau... Of Saint Paul, Minnesota. No matter what happens in American politics over the next week, I've had a good week because of your letter. And keep us posted on your religious journey. You know, keep, keep don't don't be a stranger.
3: And now time for some pod biz, specifically the fundraiser results. I'm happy to report that our fundraiser is over and we had more than 1,025 people who donated. So thank you so much to all of you. And 10 lucky people who donated have been selected by the unorthodox sorting hat to have a Zoom with me, Mark, or Liel. So my crew is Monica Brady, Tolly Canfi, Jerome Marcus, and Benjamin Pollock. That is like the cool crew that I'm really excited to Zoom with. And the people who will be Zooming with Mark are Micah Ezekiel, Clarissa Berkovich-Guelman, and Kathy Ebel. That is Mark's crew. And the three lucky winners of a Zoom with Liel are Michael K., Yosef Robinson, and Daniel Zucker. So look out for an email from us with information about those Zooms and just get excited. Thank you all so, so much for donating, for listening to us talk about this. And that's it for the fundraiser and for Podbiz. Let's get back to the show.
2: J. Crew, these days, you know what we could all use? We could all use a laugh. And so we turn to one of our favorite former guests one of our favorite comedians judy gold whose new book is yes i can say that it's a polemic against the movement to censor comedians in the name of political correctness and we are delighted to have her back in the show
3: We are here with returning Jew of the Week. Judy Gold is a comedian, actor and author of the wonderful new book, Yes, I Can Say That. When they come for the comedians, we're all in trouble. Welcome back to the show, Judy. Oh my God. Do you know how much I love you guys? I love this podcast. It's so
4: great. I can't believe I didn't think of it.
2: And this podcast loves you so dearly and unabashedly. You have the prerogative to always come in and boot any one of us of your choice, off the air, you can let it be Mark, because he's not here on this interview. So right. let's just boot him. Yeah, where is and he? Who even knows?
3: It's interesting. You have your own show, Kill Me Now with Judy right. Gold. So that coming from a podcaster, that is high praise. Yeah, I am so Jewy too. Cause
4: you know, my girlfriend Elisa, well, we got our DNA done. I don't know if you've done so. I'm I have a new joke in my act that I'm ninety-nine point eight percent Ashkenazi Jew. She's ninety-nine point nine percent because they took off for rhinoplasty, but um, (laughs) I am actually 98.2 and she's like 99.9. I'm very upset. She's the real deal. I know, but I'm way more
2: observant than her. I thought in your case, it would just come back with a note that says like, seriously, do you really even have to ask? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
3: So Judy, we had you on our show. It was a live show. We had Father James Martin. He was the Gentile. You guys then like really hit it off. We are very good friends now and I yeah, thank you we for love that. that. He is such a good guy. There's not many people in the world like him. The reason I bring that up is because so we were at the JCC in Manhattan and your son was there playing basketball at the same time. And he has since he got accepted into Tulane to play Division One basketball. Was he able to go to school? Like, what's the pandemic update? So he went, he got there at the end of June. We moved him in. And he's
4: not allowed to come home. But there was one weekend in August where they said, you can go home for the weekend. And he didn't want to go home because it's, you know, it's a schlep for him. But the, his roommates, his two roommates who were also basketball players, did go home. One came back positive. They then took them all, put them in this quarantine dorm where Ben said it was torture. He was negative. So they said, you can quarantine in New York. So he came back to New York and proceeded to a week later become positive. And his two best friends, his girlfriend, my ex, her wife, all were positive. And I was going to come back from Provincetown to visit him. Thank God I didn't. And then they ended up getting
3: sick and now he's back. Wow, that is intense. I mean, I feel like the beginning of these like Zoom calls are always like check-ins of like, how how is everyone? And it's interesting because everyone got sick
4: differently. Like Ben lost sense of taste and smell. That's the Tulane guy. And he was sniffly and tired. And then Henry, my other son, granted, he is quite dramatic. Uh, I don't know where he gets it from. <laughs> he was like... <laughs> I can't breathe, but he was, he was really, he sounded really sick. My ex still has lingering fatigue and coughing. Her wife is young, no comment. And so she's fine, but it's, it definitely hit everyone completely differently.
2: First of all, happy to hear that, that everyone is Thank seemingly you. on the mend, but you know, I thought about this. It seems like if, if if you're a normal person, you have a sort of license when something like this happens to cope in whatever way you want to cope, right? You're fine. If you're Judy Gold and you're a comedian and this is your line of work and you're a particular kind of comedian who's kind of praised for cerebral observations, etc. I love you. Are you feeling a certain kind of pressure to sort of be funny in the face of this, even though you have to deal with two kids? Like, this is serious
4: shit. As a comedian, I have comedian brain. And I'm telling you, it doesn't matter how ornery the situation is. I always think, where's the joke? Sometimes they don't share, but that's how we think. Comics will also call each other to tell each other stuff that they know they can't tell anyone else. Because (laughs) we're the only ones. It's like being a Jew when you're like, only you can get this. But (laughs) we also, and you know, it's interesting because I do have a lot of COVID stuff. And I recently did, you know, I've been doing this Zoom shit, which I can't take.
3: But I recently did a gala. Is it gala or gala? I think it depends on how obnoxious you want to sound. Yeah. Right. Like gala is when you want to sound really obnoxious, I think. So I did a gay-la. I did an LGBTQ-la. And, you know, they said, can you do a few minutes of...
4: St-? They're always pre-recording because they have to control everything. And I did a little stand-up and then I realized the guy that I was replacing for this gala died of COVID and I couldn't do any of the COVID jokes. So it's like, it is a fine, fine line. But jokes are not only healing and medicinal But they're also a weapon. So I still feel,
3: where's the joke? That brings us perfectly to your book. I mean, it's called Yes, I Can Say That. When they come for the comedians, we are all in trouble. And it's really all about how you can't set these limits. And the subtitle of this book made me very happy. When they come for the comedians, we are all in trouble. Because any Jewish person is like, first they came for this blah, blah, blah. And then they came for the blah, blah, blah. Like, we all know what that is, that like, it's a poem right? by this like German Lutheran pastor about what happens when they come for the communists and then the socialists and then the trade unionists and then the Jews. So to me, this is like the most Jewish way to open this cover of this book. Well, that's how I think. But I do believe when it comes to
4: speech that humor and satire, once you stop that, I mean, that really is the end of free speech, not allowing someone to laugh. You know, in Germany pre-World War II, it was the comedians and cabaret people who were getting on stage and talking about the truth and what was going on. And then Hitler had the Treachery Act, which anyone who joked about him would be killed. And there were jokes going around about him. But cut to having a president who has zero sense of humor. He has no sense of humor. I mean, in order to have a sense of humor, you do have to sort of be self-effacing and have some sort of self-awareness and be able to be disarmed and stuff, you know, all the stuff that just is not there. But the fact that he said something to the effect of that SNL should be investigated and that he can't even handle a comedian at the White House correspondence dinner. I mean, it's it's mind boggling, but it's also that, you know, we're Jews, we use humor. We've used it for thousands of years to get out of crappy situations. It's, the I mean, just think, There's so many, so much about satire and humor that is a part of our existence, the way we speak. The fact that there's people in Borough Park right now discussing a passage that's been discussed for thousands and thousands of years, trying to find some sort of nuance, which is what comedy is, nuance, context, intent. And your bar mitzvah, you know, they say, here's your passage. Let's do something different with it. Make it your own. And that's what a joke is. That is taking a situation and looking at it from a completely different perspective. And there's so many Jewish comedians because... We are taught to think out of the box. We're taught to argue. We're taught to look at things from different perspectives.
2: So first of all, thank you for recognizing that the Talmud is inherently hilarious. Right. Second of all, it seems to me and I kind of caught the Swift and maybe it's just my overactive imagination reading the book that you're in this really lonely place, right? Cuz on the one hand, you have as you said a political situation in which from the right there is certainly not an influx of humor. On the other hand, as you say a lot in the book, from the left, there is a situation in which groups, sometimes well intentioned, sometimes not so much, kind of say, "Oh well, you can't say that. That's right, not a right. joke you could tell." Do you feel like the loneliest person in the world, knowing that you kind of exist and there is no natural group of people with whom you could discuss, or, or is the natural group of people naturally comedians or Jews, and and the rest of the world just got smaller, tighter, and and more airless?
4: You know, it's funny because there's. I think there's two parts to the the answer to that question. I think I feel loneliest when I'm on stage, and I am alone on stage, and the audience is doing that. I mean, it's the con. Ooh, oh, ooh, and I call them out now. I now have to do a disclaimer: If you love Trump, you're going to hate me. If you're overly sensitive, you're going to hate me. You know, if you're easily offended, you're going to hate me. You know, so FYI. So if I do a joke and I get ooh, I'll say, okay, you can write to me at judygold.com and tell me that, you know, I'm a self-hating Jew or whatever. But the comedy community is, it's like the Jewish community in a way. You know, there's certain looks, there's certain unsaid things and said things, you know, that, that we just understand but it got to the point where I was at the comedy cellar and Dave Attell says to me, Oh, I I'm going to, I'm doing this joke on my special. Do you think I'm going to get in trouble? And I'm like, Oh my God, you, you too. And it was, it's just, yes, words evolve. Yes. Certain things mean different things now, but taking things out of context and taking away the intent And not listening to the full thought. You know, it's like you hear a word and then you're done instead of hearing the full thought. You know, if you murder someone and you go on trial, your sentence is determined by your intent. And yet we don't give the same consideration to comedians. It's ridiculous. But it is, (laughs) you know, what's scary is lonely is when comedians are like, you know, it's really no big deal if I just stop doing my act and start doing a new act. Yes, it is. It is a big deal when you stop talking about things. There's, there's no evolution, no discourse, no evolution. I don't, and I'm talking about hate speech too. I mean, I think all speech should be free, so we know what the truth. You know, comedians tell the truth. They speak truth to power. Every time you, you know, I talk about my book, or oh, they're like, "Oh, Lenny Bruce, Lenny Bruce." Yeah, Lenny Bruce was arrested for cursing. What they really wanted him was because he was talking about segregation and the Vietnam War and how corrupt the government is and was. And yet they got him on these
2: words, these curse words. Like getting Al Capone for taxes, right? It's right, like, right. So, but but that kind of pushes me further into the rabbit hole because I'm reading this and I'm thinking if I'm a working comedian with you know stature and success and it's the year 2020 and we're now half a century removed from the time of Lenny Bruce – I should have an expectation that this uh, struggle is over. This free speech battle has been won. And now I could focus on, you know, making big jokes or whatever it is that I want to say that is funny. So at some point when you decide to work on this project, was there a part of you that was like, God damn it. Like, I can't believe that in the year 2019 or whatever it is, I actually have to commit to this project. Yes.
4: I can't believe how far we've come. You know you know, they do all these surveys now about these kids who have no idea about the Holocaust, right? Because they're not teaching it in school. They know nothing. They think it didn't happen. You know, it's not the same level. I'm not comparing this to the Holocaust, but I am comparing it to the fact when you forget where you came from, when you stop talking about it, when you stop, you know, oh, I don't have to do that anymore. Oh, they did, you know, that's, it all comes around again, and it's dangerous. Don't you think it's dangerous?
2: Oh, 100%. Yeah. And, and I love the Holocaust equivalent. I, maybe we should have like Lenny Bruce, like Memorial Days. You know, it's Lenny's a, it's, List or something.
4: They don't know the history. There's no reverence. There's no... I mean, look, I've had so many people through my... I've done plays and stuff. And they're like, why do you people always talk about the Holocaust? It's like, <laughs> I, I can't <laughs> tell you how many... There's so many movies about the Holocaust.
2: Yes, yes, there are. You know,
4: and it's like, (laughs) well, we run the media so we can do the movies. But because you can never forget. Now, never forget has grown. We keep repeating history. You know, look, the burning of books was one of the first things they did. Think about you know, to kill a mockingbird. They're going to take that out of schools? What the hell is going on here?
3: I mean, do you think as Jews, we have a unique responsibility in this? Like, is are you writing this book as a comedian, but also as a Jewish person who has that experience? Well, I do everything as a Jewish person, but... <laughs> as a Jewish comedian. <laughs>
4: yeah, but I do think that, yes, I think that comes into it. And I mean... The chapter I do on Joan Rivers, to me, she really did embody the whole premise of this book. You know, yes, I can say that. I just did. And it didn't do anything horrible. It didn't make any. This is what people don't understand. It doesn't make whatever you're joking about any worse. You know, I spoke to Gilbert Gottfried another Jew, you know, we were talking and when I was interviewing him for the book and he talked about when you tell a joke and it's an off color or whatever, and people go, they cover themselves. <laughs> they're like,
5: oh, I shouldn't laugh
4: at that, but I am. It's an involuntary thing. And if you do laugh at it, does that make you a horrible person? No. So, you know, that whole Aflac thing, I don't know if you remember it from the book, but when he was fired from Aflac for doing he tweeted these jokes about the tsunami that was going on in Japan. First of all, no one knew how bad the tsunami was when he had tweeted those. Number one, number two, Twitter was new. Number three, his fans were like, "Aren't you? Go- There's a disaster. Aren't you going to tweet some funny things?" And he said, "Sure." And he said that that night he was watching the news, and uh, the newscaster was talking about the tsunami and all the destruction and death and how horrible it is. And then the newscaster said, "And to make matters worse." Gilbert Gottfried. Gilbert said, I made matters worse. I made matters worse. I didn't even know I was that important, you know? Why are we holding comedians to a completely different standard with their speech? Look, we just want to make you laugh. We get on stage. It's the only art form where you are watching a work in progress. It's not like someone's painting a masterpiece and they're like, you know what? I'm about eighth of the way done, and I really want to bring an audience in, and, you know, should I put the tree here? Should I put the bema? Okay, you like how I did that? (laughs) You know, what, what should I? No, this is half the time, we don't know where the line is until we've crossed it. The audience informs us as much as we inform the audience. A great joke lives on the edge of what is appropriate, and if you joke about something, it doesn't take away the horror of that thing. I mean, we know that in the concentration camps, they were entertaining each other and joking around. We have used it as a coping mechanism. And it's disarming. Say what you will about Obama. When he would get on stage, even at the correspondence or wherever, and he'd do a joke, something disarming about, yeah, I know, can you believe this week? It was like a sigh of relief in the audience. You know, okay, all right, we can do this. You know, that comedy is so powerful and speech is so powerful and you look at these elected officials who say who lie and say abhorrent things who incite violence and their speech is protected and yet a comedian is getting canceled because you were offended if you go to a comedy club and you get upset that you were offended that's like going to an amusement park getting on a roller coaster
3: and being upset that you got scared Could you, like, break this down for us? Like, what is the purpose of a joke? Like, can you, like, for people who really don't get it, can we just, like, get very granular here? Yeah, of course. I mean, there's so
4: many reasons for a joke. Okay. A joke is a buildup of tension and then a release. A joke is a surprise. A joke can inform. A joke can break a stigma. I have a chapter about disabled comics who get on stage with their very apparent disability and people leave their shows with more knowledge about that disability. And if they encounter someone with the same disability, they're like, oh, I saw that comic. They're fine. They're, they're, you know, humor, it is a healing mechanism. But there's something really incredible. If you were at a comedy club and you're sitting there laughing and the next table that is laughing too, you're so unified as an audience. You you don't know if they're the next table or people you hate. Maybe they're in the KKK. It doesn't matter. It brings people together. And I feel like it is so American. You know, I grew up on sitcoms. At the time these situation comedies were on, first of all, the characters were just as much a part of my family as my siblings and my parents. You know, they were, you know, we were so invested. In those characters. And when situations happened to them that mirrored situations that were going on in America, it forced a dialogue. And there was sort of a disconnect because, you know, their characters, but, you know, all in the family would never go down the air today. There was an episode of Maude, I went to the Museum of Broadcasting, where she decided to have an abortion to terminate her pregnancy. It was a two parter. She was 47 in this episode, got pregnant unexpectedly, was already a grandmother. And they decide over these two episodes to terminate the pregnancy. And it was so well done. The last line of that, I'm gonna paraphrase, she looks at Walter and says, are we doing the right thing? They're hugging. And he says, we are doing the right thing for our family and our private lives. That would never get on a network today. Comedy is so much more than a joke. You think about World War II. Bob Hope was bringing these entertainers to military bases to make them laugh? What other country sends people to entertain their armed forces to make them laugh? It's so much a part of who we are. When, and when you stop and you say, you know what, you can't talk about that. You can't use that word anymore. That's a stereotype. What do you have left? What is there? Can you, If you're going to banish humor and satire, banish wisely because a world without laughter is, I don't even know what it is. I mean, think about the most horrible, I was just at a funeral. My cousin died. It was one of the saddest, I mean, I've been to a lot of funerals, unfortunately, but it was so sad but there was a moment of levity where my aunt said something about him, which was like, Oh yeah. yeah." And it, it just released all of this sadness and it's just so powerful. Think of the producers, the show, the producers, you know, and how they mocked Hitler and how devastating that is for someone who really doesn't get it, you know, but, It's young people who are saying, you can't say that. It's young people. This book came about because Vice News was doing a story about college bookers telling comedians what they can and cannot say. And I was the opposing viewpoint. Who are you? Here's a perfect example. And it fits the show. So my friend Karen teaches stand-up. She has a class. She's amazing Jewish. It's all ages. And she has a 2G in her class, a child of Holocaust survivors. And she has a teenager in the class. And the 2G, that's Child of Holocaust Survivors, comes in with her first material, and she's talking about being a child of Holocaust Survivors and the jokes they would make when they were kids and the games they would play. I don't, I don't know the joke. Something about, you know, we called Hide and Seek Holocaust. Like, that was the name of the game. Whatever. She was doing jokes based on her life and her truth. And this teenager wrote to the teacher karen and said unless you tell her she is not allowed to talk about that i am not taking this class how dare she take the most horrible tragedy and minimize it and it, who are you who are you this is who she, this is her life this is who she is this is her truth who are you to say no you cannot talk about that because that makes me uncomfortable what Happen. What is this idea that no
3: one can feel uncomfortable anymore? Well, it's funny because it seems like a lot of this is coming from a good place, right? This is a person who says, like, the Holocaust is sacred. You should never make fun of it. And, like, we right. get that from listeners, right? Like, we right. make fun of Nazis all the time. Like, I find that to be something that is, like, my birthright as a grandchild of Holocaust. We're like, that's what I want to do. I'm not, like, defacing the memory of the Holocaust through that. But we have listeners who sort of who get who get upset about it. And it's interesting. It's a conversation that's ongoing. But it's, it's hard because when it comes from a good place, right, when it's not just someone like who finds something that you said 10 years ago that's net, that, and they sort of want yes, to go after yes. you. This sort of seems like someone who's like, this is the Holocaust, we can't do that. So how do we both keep, I mean, the Holocaust they, is a- they They're 16, they're 17. They need
4: to learn more about, you know, look, there's an example in the book about, I made a joke about, I was at the tennis court. I live in Provincetown part of the year and they have this carnival, which is like Mardi Gras. And that year, the theme was the 80s, right? And so I'm playing tennis with this guy. He's my age doubles. Cause you know, I can't move. And he said, Oh, we're going to go as Madonna or something. What are you going to go as? And I said, Oh, I, I was thinking of going as a distressed T cell. Right. And he starts laughing and we're laughing because we lost so many people, you know? And when I think of the eighties, I have PTSD. I can't even look at videos. It makes me so sad. And we're laughing because, It's the only thing you can do at at certain points. You know, my mother used to say, if we weren't laughing, we'd be crying. And he told a younger friend of his that I had said that, and the friend was appalled. It just shows, yes, the shift in generation. Yes, I do think that's such a good thing that you feel... Like protective. Right, protective. But it is a coping mechanism. You know, after George Floyd was murdered in the top 10 Spotify downloads was a bit by Richard Pryor from 1974 about the police. People need to hear the truth. People, you know, I do an Anne Frank, I used to do this Anne Frank joke and people would say, oh, that makes me feel uncomfortable. And I say, I get on stage every night and I talk about the Holocaust. No matter where I go, I mention the Holocaust. And it's how I communicate. I'm not cheapening that. The rule is if you're going to talk about something so subversive, it better be funny. It's got to be a funny joke. And there's certain topics that we can talk about because
3: we know them that other people can't. I mean, you can talk about being the grandchild of Holocaust survivors. That's an important part of my identity. Like, my grandparents right. in the DP camp were in the theater troupe. And they would, like, half of them would dress up as Nazis and half of them would dress up as prisoners. And you're like, well, if they can do that, right. <laughs> then you're saying that I can't say this. Yeah, I mean, I get it. I get it. I mean, the thing that to me is, like... The worst thing is like unfunny Holocaust humor. Like that's the problem. Right. That's the point. You cannot, if you're going to write a joke about the Holocaust, it's got to be
4: hilarious. It has to be like worth it basically, right? Right. Everything. If you're going to write a joke about racism, it better be funny. That's where it gets lost is that you have a crappy joke. And also if this kid is offended, then what do you do with that? You're offended. So move on. Just ignore, you know what? I didn't like that joke. Does that mean that person should never be able to perform again because you were offended? No, absolutely not.
3: It's interesting. It's like you go around the country and the world and you talk about the Holocaust every night. Like that is a service to all these people who don't know about the Holocaust. I am talking about it.
4: You might not like that, but you should own it. That's your opinion. If you hear a song you don't like, what do you do? You turn it off.
3: I write into the radio station and demand it never be played again. it never be played. (laughs) Well, you're basically, you go on stage and you bare your soul as a comedian, right?
4: And I think that's why people take it so personally. I also think that's why people say stuff to comedians that they don't say to other performers. Like, people come up to me after a show and they say things. I'm like, are you kidding me? That's an act. There's a chapter called, there's a reason it's called an act. That's me times a thousand. So... You don't know. Well, thank this is a good thing about COVID. No one's coming up to me after the show and saying anything, you know? But there's a rule I have that, you know, I will say anything that I think is funny. But if I think the audience is laughing for the wrong reason, that's when I stop. That's when I call it out. And you'll say in a set, like Yes. Wow. Because you know, you know when they're laughing because they're anti-Semitic or they're racist or they're homophobic, you know. That to me is the most uncomfortable and sad part. I mean, I'm lucky because I've been doing this so long. People come to see me so they know what they're getting, but there are plenty of times where I just, the audience doesn't know me and they laugh for the wrong reason. And that's when you have to, you do have to call it out and say, hey, no, that's not what I'm saying. That's a lot of work. It is, but it's so fun. I love it so much. I mean, making people laugh, uh, you know, I'm definitely in the book this year. I
3: was written, inscribed, baby. You deserve to be. You're in the book and you have your own book and you have your podcast, Kill Me Now. Our listeners can listen to you all the time. And the book is, Yes, I Can Say That. How do you pronounce, how do you say it? You know, we, I just had this conversation <laughs> yesterday.
4: Some people say, yes, I can say that. Some people say, yes, I can say that. I sort of think of it as a response to, you can not say that. And I, Yes, I can say that. Yes, I can. I just said it. I guess I can say that. And nothing happened. <laughs> no one got struck by lightning. Judy Gold, thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to catch up with you. Thank you. And happy, healthy new year.
1: Mazel tovs this week. Stephanie, do you have a mazel tov?
3: I have a mazel tov because October 31st, 2020, is my sister-in-law, Sarah Silver's 30th birthday. She's a Halloween baby. I know my my mother-in-law, Wendy Cohen, I think like the labor push started on the 30th. And there, she was like, don't be a Halloween baby. Don't be a Halloween baby. And then she came out on Halloween. She said to share her birthday party with everyone's parties around the world for her whole life. But I'm so excited to celebrate her.
1: Yom halet et, sarah mayach. It's sarah
3: mayach, actually.
2: Yom halet et. Sarah Sarah Meach on Halloween. Uh, Also a happy Halloween uh, to friend, contributor, former guest, Stu Halpern, who is a Halloween baby as well. Stewie. I'll do a little mishmash or or as I call it, a
1: mishmash for longtime listeners. I recently celebrated my 15th wedding anniversary with uh, the great Mrs. Sid Oppenheimer. Uh, It's been an awesome 15 years, so she won't hear this because she doesn't listen to the podcast.
3: (laughs) That's the reason. Which way you've lasted so long. That's the reason, yeah.
1: Because she doesn't hear you. But her mother, who shares a birthday with my marriage, we were married on my mother-in-law's birthday, will tell my wife about the happy anniversary. So. A happy birthday to my mother-in-law, to Linda Fremer, And a happy anniversary to my dear wife, Sid Oppenheimer. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine. On the web at tabletmag.com. Send your thoughts to unorthodox at tabletmag.com or call us 914-570-4869. Our show is produced by the great Josh Cross and the great star Fredman Ader. Our associate producer is the terrific Robert Scaramuccia. Our artwork is by the indefatigable Esther Werdiger. Our theme music is by Golem. online at golemrocks.com. Our mailbox theme is by Steve Barton, out there in Cali, foreign IA. Rabbinic supervision by Rabbi Esther Hugenholtz of a Agudis Achim Congregation in Coralville, Iowa. Your vote counts so, so much. We come to you again from the scattered locations in the diaspora, in the dispersion. Shalom, friends. If I start talking too fast somebody should yell should reach out through the phone lines and slap me down okay